All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. Appreciate you all joining us for this multifamily panel discussion. My name is Danny Wall. I'm, the, I'm an assistant dean at the University of Utah, David Eccles School of Business. I also run our graduate degree in real estate in the Ivory Boy Real Estate Center. I have been asked to start by making sure you all know that this is being recorded, as are the other uh, breakout sessions. So if you're missing something that you wanted to see, um, they'll, uh, they'll be converted to podcasts for you to, to review later. So anyway, uh, we're going to start right in. I'd like to introduce our panel and thank them for taking the time to do this. We've got, uh, we've got well, I guess we'll go in order here. We've got Kurt Turley from Heinz. Kurt's the, uh, the director of development for Heinz. Uh, we've got Alex Lowe from the Lowe Property Group. He's the principal and their chief investment officer. Jake Wood from, from Jay Fisher. Uh, Jake is he's a partner, but his, his focus is on affordable housing. And then Mark Jensen, who's an executive vice president at Collier's. Uh, there aren't very many people in our market who know more about multifamily than, than these gentlemen up here. So we're, uh, we're grateful to have them here. So we're going to jump right in. And we're going we're gonna to start with something that's a little easier. We'll start light, given uh, what's happened over the last week. Um, we keep hearing rumors about how hard it is to get deals done, and, and, uh, but tell us what you're working on right now. What, uh, maybe specifically something that you're pretty excited about. Kurt, we'll start with you. Thanks, Danny. Well, I'm going to set this down. We kind of have a, a look here going. I, I think I should have worn my, my, BYU, uh, my BYU pin. But <laughs> shots fired early. <laughs> um, but no, in, in, in all seriousness, uh, very excited and happy to be part of this panel. I'm excited to learn from, from these gentlemen here. Um, you know, I think uh, at Heinz, uh, we're very excited about uh, you know, helping to solve uh, the current housing imbalance. And, and to that point, we're, we're currently uh, working on uh, two projects downtown. Uh, you know, a high-rise luxury multifamily uh, development uh, on Main Street. And we're also working on an office to resi conversion uh, located uh, about a block away from uh, Temple Square. So very excited about CBD Salt Lake. Um, you know, we're also working on a multifamily project in Midvale. It's a five over two stick build. And we also have a, you know, a couple industrial projects which I won't get into too much detail given you know, the, the audience here. But uh, as I look out, very uh, uh, good turnout here given uh, the long walk from uh, the main panel. But um, excited to be here, so thank you. All right, great. Alex, how about you? Yeah, so Alex Lowe, Lowe Property Group. Um, yeah, excited to be here and appreciate the opportunity. Um, so Lowe Property Group, uh, we're a company that really specializes um, in multifamily. Um, we will buy existing assets, uh, we'll develop ground up, and then we also have, um, we've, we've started a new platform. We're actually providing capital to other operators and developers that are short in projects and, and getting them financed right now in, in the form of preferred equity or mezzanine debt. Um, you know, right now, um, we are very active on the construction side projects that we started um, years ago. So, you know, right now we're, we're building 1,200 units um, in Salt Lake. Um, one project that, you know, is, is a, an exciting project is uh, called the Post District. 
um, between 5th and 6th South and 3rd and 4th West. Um, we have 13 acres there where we're building 580 units and about 250,000 square feet of office and retail. Um, we've delivered two of the four buildings and have another phase delivering here in about a month and a half. And so um, kind of some interesting insights there. And then we have another eight acres just west of that that we're hoping uh, to break ground on um, sort of end of summer. Uh, it's uh, just west of Post, we call it the, the Silos Apartments. Um, and that'll be interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about some of the challenges in today's markets and um, today's market and see what we can do to, to get that financed. All right. Thanks, Alec. Uh, thanks. Uh, my name is Jake Wood. For those of you who I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, I'm with Jay Fisher Companies. Like Danny said, my main focus at Jay Fisher is I run the affordable housing division. So I'll probably keep my comments to that, but I am excited about a lot of different things. Um, for us, the past few years have really presented a lot of opportunities for uh, creative partnerships and, and really public-private partnerships have been a cornerstone of our business the last few years. So specifically, a couple things we're excited about. Um, we have a large uh, affordable project happening that's a partnership with Park City right now. It'll be the first of its kind up there. It's really geared toward families. Um, a lot of groups have focused on workforce, which is incredibly needed there, but ours will be family-focused and uh, very low income, so we're excited about that. Uh, we have a partnership that we are just forming now with Boise City and Boise State University, so that's a, a new, unique structure for us, really bringing a lot of different public sector players together, so we're excited about that. And then um, you heard uh, Kristen from McQuinney mention a partnership in Ogden that we're working on. That's a partnership with the city of Ogden, uh, UTA, Weber State University, McQuinney, Jay Fisher. So that's a really complex one. We're excited about that. So uh, these partnerships have been really great for us. And I, again, like Alex said, hopefully we'll be able to get into the details of those a little more. All right. Thanks, Jake. Mark, how about you? Hey, everybody. My name is Mark Jensen. Appreciate the opportunity. I want to say thanks to Jacob to Spain. Jake, don't walk away. The NAAP leadership here did an awesome job of this event. I think Vivint was such a cool choice and appreciate the opportunity to be here with Titan Industry or Industry Titans here. Take a deep breath. Um, I think I am, I'm, a, I'm a broker, so I think what I'm most excited about is all of a sudden with a market shift, I'm valuable again. It feels like the last 10 years have been ex, uh, just really competitive, whether you're you know, in, across all sectors. I, what I'm most excited about right now, even though things are tough, is we're getting back to doing real deals. You've got a buyer in a room, a seller in a room, a developer, a lender. We're trying to figure out you know, what holes to fill and, and uh, what projects can move forward and how to best make those work. So I, I, it's pretty awesome to be in a, a state like Utah, where I think teamwork is, is, is just kind of commonplace. And we're doing what we need to do to keep projects moving forward and, and keep delivering units to the Utah market. All right, thanks, Mark. Kurt, I'm going to go off script. I'm going to go off script just for a second here. Uh, office to resi conversion. I, I'm sure there are some people here who would be interested in learning a little bit more about what that's all about. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at Heinz, um, you know, we are very excited about our office to resi conversion project. Um, and you know, based on the feedback that we've gotten from across the nation. Uh, a lot of people are excited about this as well. Um, we have emails and phone calls almost on a daily basis uh, asking, you know, how that project is going. You know, a lot of lot of strong interests. So, <clears throat> um, as as some of you may know, um, you know, a lot of the Class B and C office 
uh, is obsolete in today's uh, market. And Heinz, uh, you know, has an incredible breadth and depth of expertise in the office market. And so who better to kind of lead the charge on this office to resi, um, you know, strategy. Um, and, you know, happy to, to share, um, you know, some of the, the things that we've learned uh, so far in this process. But generally speaking, um, you know, we're really excited about the ESG component uh, of Office to Resi. Um, there's, there's a lot of nuance involved in, in you know, this, this redevelopment process. I think, um, you know, I'll just touch on some of the high level um, things that, that we've seen thus far. Um, not all office buildings work for conversion. Um, you know, probably less than 10% of office properties work uh, for conversion. And, and the main thing that we've seen is the floor plate has to be a smaller floor plate uh, to allow for natural light, um, you know, for, you know, to reach all of the, the multifamily units. Um, you know, so that's one thing. Uh, the height of, you know, from ceiling to ceiling has to be uh, the right height. And we found that a lot of older product, 60s and 70s vintage product, lends itself uh, to that very well. Um, so, but, but the main point that I want to make sure that everyone leaves here with the understanding uh, is that Heinz is incredibly optimistic and excited about uh, the environmental aspect. Um, you know, the main culprits of embodied carbon are concrete and steel. And I think uh, in an office to resi conversion, uh, you know, uh, an office to resi redeveloper is able to completely eliminate uh, that carbon footprint um, by reusing the, sh the core and shell of, of the building. And so this is something that we're extremely excited about and that we're you know, talking with a number of groups on a day-to-day -day basis. All right, sounds exciting. So we're gonna shift gears here. Um, like you all to put on your economist hat. And I think everyone in this room, whether you're, uh, you're trained in economics or not, well, right now anyway, we're probably wearing that hat a little more often than we'd like. Um, so let's talk, let's talk supply a little bit. Even before the Fed started raising rates, uh, Utah's housing shortage was, or Utah's housing supply, excuse me, was, was quite constrained. Uh, we peaked in 2017 at about uh, 55,000 units. That's so uh, 55,000 more households than housing units, which is remarkable. Um, the, the shortage currently sits around 30,000, which implies that there's still plenty of demand in the market for housing. But we also have increasing costs and interest rate volatility um, so, Alex, let's start with you. Give us a give us a peek behind the curtain. What's it like um, to try to get a deal to pencil right now? What's it like to try to bring supply to our undersupplied market? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the the elephant in the room right now, right? Um, it's funny when you drive around uh, Salt Lake City um, over the last couple of years. It, it definitely didn't feel like we were supply constrained, right? I mean, it felt like there was a crane on every block and so many apartments and are going up and, and new housing units. Um, and even in that time, I mean, building a project and bringing something to fruition is always challenging, right? There's always challenges. Um, some of those challenges have shifted. 
um, some of those challenges still um, still exist, and then new challenges have been presented, right? And so, you know, the one challenge that we've been dealing with over the last three or four years is really construction costs. Um, trying to understand construction costs, what it's going to take to actually get a project built. You know, there's estimates that are out there, and you're always thinking, okay, well, I'd love to be able to build it at this, but I think, you know, if you've ever built a project, you know that usually it's not this, and it's usually, you know, quite a bit more, and that's definitely been the case um, over the last couple of years. And so that challenge still um, hasn't gone away, right? Um, and to a certain degree, um, there's sort of an uncertainty out there on the construction cost side where, um, you know, again, we're building 1,200 units in today's market, and I can't tell you exactly what it's gonna take to go and build a project today. And that's just the reality of it. Um, well, we, we have our contractors, we've got great contractors that are partners on these deals, um, but to a certain degree, like, you know, we're taking historical data and then we're sort of guessing. We're hearing that subs are getting a little bit more aggressive and they're willing to sort of come to the table a little bit more, but not to the point where we think um, construction costs are, are coming down. Maybe moderating would be um, a, a term to use there. And then obviously the, the challenge that we're experiencing um, is, is really on the financing side, right? We had an abundance of capital, especially wanting to be in the Salt Lake market um, over the last three or four years. Um, that has changed dramatically and really come to an abrupt halt. Um, and it's, it's, it's on both the debt side and on the equity side. Um, you know, on the equity side, um, groups are just much more conservative. Um, they're treading very carefully, and there's a little bit of a herd mentality, especially on the institutional capital side, that um, they want to see someone go and sort of transact first to kind of reset the marks of where the market currently is before others jump in. And so that's one of the challenges there. I mean, we still get the same phone calls and people wanting to come in and coming and meeting, but to actually transact a deal versus just sort of having kind of that meet and greet and kind of be ready to go, that's a totally different world, right? Everyone thinks that they can go and raise capital when they're talking about a project and concept, but when you're actually going and trying to, um, you know, move the deal forward, that's a totally different situation. On the debt side, um, I mean, you don't have to be a mathematician um, to understand sort of what's happened there. When you go and basically, you know, double your borrowing costs, um, that really changes sort of the economics on these deals. The, the other piece of it is really sort of what that capital stack looks like. And, the, you know, the, the biggest component is one is, you know, can you carry that additional cost of the additional interest, especially during construction? What do you project on that takeout loan? That's always a question and everyone's going to look at that a little bit differently. Um, but the biggest thing is sort of what do those loan proceeds look like going in, right? And if you look and say, okay, if I'm underwriting a 1.2 DSCR, and we were meeting with some of our bankers even yesterday, and we were talking through this and saying, okay, they've got a 7% spot rate, and but really borrowing costs on the non-recourse side are probably north of 8% right now. On the recourse side, it's between 7 and 8%, somewhere in there, and that's on new financing. It's like, well, how do you go and make a new deal work, and what does that size do, right? And we all have our pro forma rents, but that pro forma rent, are you gonna get it appraised at that level, right? Those are always hard things to do as well. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're looking at where maybe a project was looking to get 70, 75% loan to, loan to cost, that's being squeezed down to 55, 50, 45. I mean, we really look at some of these new numbers and you're really realistic about where construction costs are and what cost of capital is. That's really where these things are kind of getting sized out. And then the question is, can you really raise the capital to fill that slug? And that's real, you know, that's a real challenge. So I want to be a naysayer. I think there's some ways to hopefully get some deals done, but that's just the reality of what we're dealing with in, in today's market. All right. Thanks, Alex. Jake, your product type has always been undersupplied. And and so that that dynamic hasn't changed that much. But how much harder is it right now to bring product to market? 
Um, I mean, everything Alex just said, we deal with that. It's a little bit different for us. You know, we, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about supply and demand, whether or not our, our units are going to be uh, absorbed by the market. We, we just don't study it that much because it's, it's a given, right? I mean, we are way underwater on, on capital A affordable housing deed restricted product. It, we will probably never build our way out of the hole that we're in right now. So that's not our issue. Our issues are all of the things that Alex said. Um, we want to choose locations for our projects that best serve the, the people that need them, the tenants that need them. So you know, even starting from day one from site selection, we're out there competing with market rate developers, high-end developers, and the, the cost of land for the seller is the same to all of us. I compete with Alex on land, and, and he can probably pay more because he, he usually wins. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think I started going the, to the city's public-private partnership? So. Um, we're, we're next door neighbors too, so <laughs> yeah. we can do that. Yeah. We can. Um, but you, you know, when, he, when Alex talks about the, the costs to build, the costs to borrow, we have all those things and our, our products are a little different. You know, we don't necessarily think about a, a, a takeout of, of ours because when we use tax credits, we fix our rate three years in advance. We fix the permanent rate at the time of construction loan closing. So we're in an incredibly high rate environment right now. But if you look at any forward curve, three years from now, we're probably way lower. But we have to deal with the rates today. And so we have to put ourselves into situations where we're making decisions today that are going to affect us for the next 5, 10, 15 years. And that becomes incredibly challenging. Um, one advantage that we have, I think, is that our company is vertically integrated from top to bottom. So we do all of our own in-house uh, land acquisitions, entitlements. We also have our own general contractor. So we build all of our own projects, which allows us to very closely monitor and track costs and trends in pricing. So if I want to know the latest numbers, I just walk down the hall, talk to our director of construction, find out what are we seeing today, if we bid this today, if we if we lock in six months, what are we, you know, we, we try and project it and we're still wrong, right? To Alex's point, we still don't know how much it costs. Um, so we build massive contingencies in there. We build massive buffers so that we don't get caught red-handed with our hand in the cookie jar later on, you know, trying to figure out a problem midstream. Um, and then, you know, financing, right? We, we have the same issues with raising capital. We have massive gaps every time. Our debt and equity don't match the value of the project. Um, you know, appraisals are all over the map. We have lenders all the time pitching us on new products saying, hey, guys, we can get you up to 60% loan to value or 90% uh, loan to value. But when you look at it from a debt constraint perspective, we're at 60%. So it doesn't, you know, some of these things out in the marketplace are really hard to navigate. and. Uh, like Alex said, though, we're also optimistic because we're still out there doing it every day. We still go to work every day uh, with the 100% belief that we're going to pull it off, that we're going to keep keep these uh, machines moving. All right. Thanks, Jake. And Mark, uh, let's talk, same question, but let's talk a little bit about buyers and sellers. Um, what are you seeing? What, what challenges are they facing right now? Yeah, I mean, obviously the markets have shifted and when your cost of capital goes up, you can't pay the same amount of money without, you know, some other moving parts. We've been fortunate like through probably the summer and maybe early fall that our mark to market was still really high. So we didn't have a lot of buyers planning on rent growth or anticipating, you know, the high rent growth we've seen the last couple of years. But that mark to market was still seven, eight percent. So even though interest rates had come up, it wasn't like we were seeing the, you know, the 25 percent price hits that a Phoenix saw on some of their value add older stuff. We were still able to put some deals together. Um, you know, right now, if you're raising money based on an IRR, an internal rate of return, 
we don't know what exit caps are. We don't know what costs are going to be. It, it's pretty hard to do. And so, you know, a lot of the REITs and funds are kind of out of the game for a minute. They're on pause. You're not going to see Texas Teacher Fund or CalPERS investing in any of, you know, the big deals in the short term. Um, but what that has created is some opportunities for groups that are have just always wanted to be in this market, private clients. I mean, we have a pretty solid insurance policy in our market that Utah is better placed to invest in over the next 10, 20 years than California. Um, so most of the deals we're doing right now are high net worth, you know, out of blue states. Uh, we've got a deal we just closed with a group from Chicago. We've got a, a Canadian fund we're under contract on a deal. I mean, we're still making deals, which is great. Uh, and I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about we have support in our market. You know, we're a, we're a, a very nice risk-adjusted return compared to other markets, you know, even sister markets like a Boise or a Denver or a Phoenix. Um, and so, you know, it is a place that people want to be, and we do have a great, you know, we're topping job growth and we're chopping population growth and those types of things kind of keep us there. But as I was explaining to a client the other day, you know, we're not going to see cap rates go to six and 7% because in the Utah market, we don't have enough volume anyway. We're going to have people that just come and pay cash for deals. We have a deal out in St. George right now that we actually had a, a, a buyer stun the process and just pay all cash because it got into kind of the low five cap rate range. And they were like, Hey, where else am I going to get that type of return? And so you're going to have plenty of capital on our market. Obviously we're not going to see the same three caps that we saw you know, when we obviously had lower debt, but we still are seeing transactions. We have a lot of buyers that want to be in this market. We're still able to raise capital for deals. I mean, to, to Alex and Jake's points, um, the, I kind of been on a roller coaster since Q4 because Q4 was like, hey, we want to move forward with this development deal, but proceeds from lenders are down. What can we do? So we went to Grant at Keystone and said, hey, can we do MES pieces? We went to other groups and said, you want a JV? So we put together a couple of deals. This last week is kind of you know, hurt us a little bit. I think there's a little bit more volatility in the debt markets over the next couple of weeks. So we'll see if we're still able to do those, but good deals are still going to move forward. We've got awesome developers in the Utah market that figure things out that are more bullish on our market than out-of-state developers. We've had a few out-of-state developers pull out of projects where the local developers are here. And I, I like to say that we're stubborn and we have grit and we believe more in our product than anyone else will. And that's what you'll continue to see in our market. I've been saying it's a locals game, which is a lot like 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16. So, you know, kudos to these guys. They'll figure out how to keep doing deals, and Utah's a great place to invest. So bullish in the medium to long term. Can I just one, one comment on that, Mark? So, I, you know, when you talk about sort of local versus national developers, I mean, I think that the big difference, and especially sort of with how we look at deals, right, um, is sort of we're, we're typically long-term holders. Um, if you're a merchant developer right now, I mean, that's, that's a tough game to be in, right? I mean, what, what are you assuming right now on that exit two years, three years from now, um, that's a pretty tough place to be. But when you look at sort of the market overall and you say, okay, look, we're here, we're here to stay. As Jake said, we're still going to work every day. We believe in this market. Um, there are some really unique and, um, you know, just difficult challenges that um, we're all facing right now. But does that mean that we don't believe in this market? No, absolutely not, right? It's just a matter of getting sort of through this period and out on the other side. And I think that kind of having that local presence is obviously a huge component of that and gives us that confidence kind of moving forward, so. And just to touch on some of the comments that were made here. Um, you know, I think Heinz obviously is a multinational company. Uh, so we have a broader outlook on things. Um, one of the things that was mentioned was more of a conservative approach, uh, given you know, all the challenges that everyone's facing. Uh, currently, um, and that's definitely you know something that that Heinz as a company uh, stresses. Um, 
you know, we, we try and provide, you know, like, like Mark said, uh, risk-adjusted returns and accretive returns for our partners and investors. Um, so we're not going to take increased risk uh, just to, you know, jump into the market and, and set a comp, right? Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think it's important to note, um, you know, that Heinz has at its fingertips uh, more resources and more uh, things available to us that we can uh, dive into the market when needed. You know, I think for us, we're, we're trying to be uh, as nimble as possible at, at, at this point in time. I think, um, you know, we're trying to find creative solutions uh, to issues and challenges that we're facing. Um, you know, just to, you know, point out one example, um, we're looking at, you know, a deal right now where, um, you know, maybe for the seller, they're not getting the pricing that they, that they're looking for on an, on an already existing deal. Right. Um, you know, but, but to the points that were, that were mentioned, you know, we're looking at, at potentially entering into a JV, uh, with the seller. We're looking at potentially entering into, uh, a fee development position, um, you know, which are all optionalities that Heinz, uh, provides. All right. Thank you. So, one other uh, supply side question I wanted to ask, um, and I know this uh, this might be a little controversial, but let's talk about it anyway. Uh, so according to data from Western States Appraisal, there are a lot of units in the pipeline for Salt Lake City. And uh, you know, this is pretty up-to-date data, but 10,200 units are currently under construction, 2,900 additional units with potential to start in six months and then an additional 12,000 units uh, with potential to start uh, six months from now. So just a simple question. Um, are you concerned about oversupply in Salt Lake City? Do you, think, do you think the market will be oversupplied? Will we still be undersupplied? Will, we, will this help us get to equilibrium? Um, let's just talk briefly about, about that. Well, half those are Alex, so he should answer the question. <laughs> Yeah, with the 12-week concessions. <laughs> I feel like I've already done way too much talking here. Well, Alex, I think you should go first since, uh, well, since some I, of those units are yours. So. Well, I don't know what's going on here with the microphone. Keep going. Okay. Can you guys hear me? All right. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think, again, it sort of goes back to that, that time frame. That you're talking about, right? Um, you know, my, my guess is there's going to be a lot of people that say, you know, you look at sort of the overarching data, and um, I think it's, there's an easy argument to make about sort of this market being undersupplied. And again, when you look at that from a long-term perspective, that feels really good to me. Um, and so if I look and kind of say, hey, where do I want to have chips on the table? And clearly, we've got a few chips on the table. Um, is we want to be in this market and we want to be in this market long term. I think when you sort of um, break it down. Hello? Okay. Is that better? Sorry. I thought that I was holding it too close, which was causing the issue. But um, I think when you look at um, sort of what we're seeing on the ground level and on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I think it's hard not to argue that um, there's a lot of units and there's a lot of units that are in lease up right now. And that makes it challenging, right? Again, when you're trying to make a deal pencil, and I'll, I'll give a good example. So we're in the process of 
recapitalizing a deal and, and bringing in a new equity partner um, who's coming in from out of state. And, um, you know, we've been doing our market surveys and updating our rents and kind of where we think this is. And, and right now we're projecting sort of a, you know, a, a relatively high rent. This is a high quality asset. Um, sort of in the in the three bucks a square you know square foot range, um, and and I see lots of packages out there that are three twenty, three thirty, three forty. I've even seen some packages, but what we've seen just again in the market is that you start getting above kind of two eighty, two eighty five on a per square foot basis, that the market thins out a little bit, right? Do I think that we're going to push through? It kind of reminds me like I'm, it wasn't that long ago where we were saying like we were pushing the two dollar mark. And we're like, oh, we'll never, we'll never get past that, right? And then all of a sudden we went through and we really shot through that. But it starts getting to be some affordability issues and sort of what that looks like, but you need to get those rents um, in order for the deal to pencil. And so with all of kind of these projects coming online, it's tough to really push there. Um, I think that there's probably opportunity that if you can push a project through right now and get it financed and get it built, then you know, for that delivery in two or three years from now, I think you're probably gonna be sitting really well um, because there's going to be, I think, an undersupply at that point. But in that near term, there's some. Uh, I, I think there's some just real challenges. All right, thanks, Alex. Can, Kurt, can I make a oh, comment yeah, on ahead, that real Jake. quick, Danny? Because one thing that I think is important that Alex touched on that we kind of scoot right past is there's something happening in this market now that's new, and that's a diversity of product and it's a quality of product. And so when you say those big numbers of units, it sounds like a lot, and you wonder how that's going to be absorbed. But that's capturing everything from what I do, which is deed-restricted affordable. You know, Alex has done something really incredible with the Post District. And that whole area of town, the granary, we did a project there, an affordable project there in 2015. We were one of the first apartment projects to come in there. Now there's a thousand units or more built and another thousand or more coming, but it's vibrant. And when you talk about what they're doing there, when I say quality, I'm talking about placemaking. I'm talking about intangibles things that didn't happen before. So, you know, five, six years ago, if you looked at uh, Danny's report about incoming supply, most of it was mid-rise on 4th South, right? I mean, that's what we were talking about at that point in time. Now you have projects from Heinz and Kensington coming in. You know, Cowboy just opened a high-rise for rent, the first high-rise for rent product that's coming into our market. So I think when we talk about supply, I think we have to talk about diversity and quality because that's changing as well. And Jake, that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask Kurt. Um, so jumping from market rate and affordable, Kurt, you, Heinz does some, some towers, some real towers, right? And some of those units that I talked about are, are in your projects. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about how you view supply in the market since you know, building a tower, you're adding a lot of units to the market all at once. Yeah, that's right. I, I think... Um you know, it, it may, be, may be easier to, um, you know, kind of project, uh, you know, the final four in, in the NCAA <laughs> bracket at this point. But, uh, you know, I, we're firm believers in the Utah market. You know, I, I, we live here. We work here. Um, you know, we, we give back to the community. Uh, I think, you know, with, with our Main Street pro project, you know, we're, we're incredibly bullish on on the long-term outlook of Utah and where things are headed. I think you know with with all the population growth that we've seen, um, you know all the indicators point to a successful project for us there. All right, that's actually a, a really good segue uh, to to jump to the demand side. So 
I'm going to skip a question actually, and just um, since we're kind of on that topic, Utah is still the youngest state in the nation. Um, there's a shift happening right now as we speak that's actually, uh, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it, but uh, we, there are actually more Gen Zs in Utah now than there are millennials. And I remember over the last 10 years, I, I remember attending one of these things and thinking, I hope they don't talk about millennials again. It was like, just, con it was symposium after symposium of, of uh, you know, panels like this talking about millennials. Um, but uh, the oldest Gen Zs have finished college and they're starting to make more permanent housing decisions. Uh, is this something that you're talking about within your organizations? Is there a, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, but is there any indication that Gen Z housing preferences are going to be materially different? <laughs> any Gen Zers wanna? <laughs> I mean, I can tell you a little bit about the shifts that we've seen in how we design product trying to uh, predict what demand will be. It takes three years to build and deliver a project right now, and I think everybody knows that. So what you're really trying to do is build for that, that user three years into the future. And some of the shifts we've seen, you know, family units are always needed. And I think everybody up here primarily deals with rental housing. So I'm just going to focus on rental housing while we talk about this. But, you know, for sale, I think, is a completely different beast. But when we talk about the younger population, you know, I kind of touched on it a little bit uh, with talking about the Post District is placemaking, experiential living, right? I mean, people don't necessarily want to, and especially post-COVID, right? People want to get out. They want to be out at a restaurant. They want to walk around the neighborhood and have a multitude of things to do. So I think that's becoming incredibly important. So that also helps us justify smaller unit sizes, more density per project, lower parking ratios, if we can get in urban settings where people have multimodal options. So those are some of the things that we're seeing as trends going forward, and we're definitely leaning heavily into those. And a lot of, a lot of times in Utah, I feel like it's easy on the trend side because we are you know, in the middle of the country. We're not on the coast. We kind of get to watch those other markets and, and predict which trends are gonna come into our market. And we've seen this happening in all of the urban centers that are maybe five years ahead of us here in Utah. And so we feel pretty confident in most of those trends. All right, uh, Mark, I'm gonna jump over to you for a second. Um, and remember, we're on the demand side again. Let's, let's shift to investor demand. You've already touched on a little bit, but uh, so investor, or, there, there's more money out there than there are assets to buy, right? And that's been the case for quite a while. But has that dynamic shifted in the last 12 months as, as the capital markets have tightened up? And what, what are the big changes you've seen in your business over the last 12 months? I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of big changes. But I'd say the, the biggest on the investor side is that most people have been cashing up, whether that's selling assets and paying the taxes or just internally, they're like, hey, we're not going to deploy you know, one of my clients yesterday just said, we don't have conviction. I thought, what a great word, you know, like we're, we're all sort of lacking conviction because we all want to go do things. But if you don't know what exit caps are and you don't know what absorption is going to be and you really, I mean, these contractors are given, given these developers costs that like turn into pumpkins in 26 days, you know, so they can't even price things out. So there's just not a lot of predictability. And so until there is some conviction, really the buyers that are out there are groups saying, hey, maybe there's an opportunity for us to get a really great asset in a, in a market that we want to be in. Maybe we're overpaying to what the, you know, others might pay, but we're still getting a discount from peak, you know? Um, so, I mean, 
you have more family offices. I'd call them like more private client groups, you know, high net worth families that are recognizing this as a chance to come in. I mean, the, the irony for me is that a year ago, maybe we had 41 offers on a deal and now we'll have 11, but we still have 11 and we only need one. So we're still able to make good deals. I think people would be really surprised at where pricing is coming in. There is nothing on the market. So imagine if you were a family office that put something on the market, went under contract, and now all of a sudden you're about to close and you're thinking like, what am I going to go buy? You know, I, I would say this too, in the institutional level, so call it 150 units and above, you will not see anything hit the market for a while because the perception is that pricing is off 15 to 25%. Unless you have a loan coming due, performance, like I've been saying, you've never seen performance gaps so far off or so far out from pricing. Utah is performing really, really well in the scheme of things. Occupancies are high. You know, we're still absorbing in the new projects anywhere from 16 to 19 units a month, which is a really healthy market. So, uh, yeah, now I'm kind of going all over the place, but we're a really strong market. We have a lot of investor demand. Pricing has come off from the peak pricing, but it's still really healthy in my opinion. All right, Alex. I was going to say I like that term, cashing up. I just quick question for you, Mark, and I'm, I'm not no, the moderator here, but nope, I'm only just from curious, Danny. kind of at that institutional level, like what do you think sort of gets those institutions moving again? Is it because you know someone's got a loan coming to you and they have to sell, and that, that resets the pricing? I mean, kind of what 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 really drives that in your opinion? Well, I think I'd go back to you know, when we sold fourth and fifth and Wasatch built Encore in 2016 and Besco bought it, boom, you had a data point and you had an institutional buyer, right? I think what those institutions need, I think you said it was like kind of crowd think, right? We just need somebody to buy something. So we have something to be- to benchmark and it's got to be in Utah. Utah trades differently than Denver and Phoenix. And yeah. so we just need somebody to list something that wants to meet the market and we'll, we'll get, we'll get going again. All right, let's uh, let's shift to a different kind of demand, uh, tenant demand for your for rent product. Now, Jake, we've already talked about this. There's lots of tenant demand uh, in any market for for the product that you build. Um, but Kurt and Alex, uh, has has that changed much in the last twelve months? Have you seen, you know, do you still have the waiting lists you once had, or is it is it is it different? Kurt, you want to go first? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there, there are pockets where, you know, we're definitely seeing, um, you know, some trends of, of younger folks that are, you know, actually coming together, uh, you know, and kind of co- cohabitating, right, a unit, um, which, which doesn't, doesn't help. Um, but I think in general, um, you know, we're still seeing the demand, you know, out there for, for product that, that we're building. I think... You know, the younger generation going back to, you know, millennials, right, which I'm considered a millennial. I was born in 82 and I'm just on the, you know, front end of that. But, you know, I think I think there's, you know, um, incomes are up. Uh, There's a lot of younger professionals moving uh, to the CBD area and that are interested in living in the CBD area. Um, And I think, you know, all those things that that we've pointed to previously you know, are, are all good indicators for us. So uh, tenant demand is, is still there. Uh, again, we're seeing pockets where, you know, that, that m- dynamic may be changing. Um, you know, and, and that's a, again, that's a short-term challenge, right, given, you know, the great, the macroeconomic uh, challenges that we're seeing out there. But, you know, to that point, we're, we're still very bullish on, on the market. All right, so. thanks. 
Alex. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with Kurt. Um, and I, I think it is very sort of, you know, very sub-market to sub-market and depending kind of within those sub-markets, what supply you're seeing um, and kind of, you know, affects obviously the tenant demand that we see on our side with our projects. But, you know, I mean, it, it does feel like, you know, there's some doom and gloom out there and not to be all doom and gloom. But I mean, if you look at our existing projects and our projects that are already built and that we, you know, started three years ago, I mean, our projects are leasing up and they're leasing up well and they're leasing up at rents that are well above our pro forma. And so those are great. As long as you've got decent financing, we don't have something coming due that forces a listing, right? Then, um, you know, I, we feel pretty good. It's really sort of that, that new challenge and kind of that new bar that we have to hit with these new financing rates. That, that's really where the challenge is. But, but that demand kind of at the tenant level, I think is still strong and, and great to see on the existing projects. So let's do a quick speed round here. Um, if you had to project 12 months from now, uh, rents, upward pressure, downward pressure, or equilibrium? You know what Mark's going to say. Yeah, Mark, well, we know I your actually, answer. I actually, <laughs> I actually don't know. What I was going to say is people call us and they're like, hey, we're really worried about the supply coming online. They're developers. It's like, well, what are you going to build? Because if you're Jake, you can build unlimited. You know, like we can't build a class B or C property. So. You know, people are driving down the freeways like, oh, you have, you're going to have a crisis. You know, you've got all these units coming online. It's like those are 10,000 Class A units, you know. So they'll come down in pricing. They'll fill up. It's a price point thing. It's not a demand thing. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. A year from now, I would say that depends on the product category. I think that rents are going to be up in new affordable deals, but they're price fixed. So I can't really say that. You'll fill up faster at the same pricing. Um, you know, class A deals, what's interesting about the, where our market has grown is that a lot of developers will come here. In fact, when Invesco bought Encore, I was like, why did you buy that? Why were you the first institution really to come into our market? And they said the average in place income to rent to income ratio was sub 18%. Whereas in LIHTC and class C, you're probably 40 to 45% in some cases. And so if you look at a Denver or in LA, they're like 35 to 40% in class A. And so they felt like they could push rents. We've kind of seen that grow up here. And so, you know, fourth West comes in over the top, people hit high watermarks. Uh, Liberty sky comes in, they're getting four bucks for studios. You know, it's like people are challenging that, but that's such a small portion of the actual market. You know, it's the stuff we all hear about though. They make great talking points, right? So which Jake, go ahead. Mark touched on something that's really interesting for our industry. Yeah, we have prescriptive rent, so we don't set the price. We don't push the price to try to, you know, push the envelope and raise that NOI. But what we see is we have a trend, and I can unequivocally tell you that in deed-restricted LIHTC properties, the rents absolutely are going up because they're AMI linked. And so if there's a silver lining here when we're talking about our economic status right now, well, I just got a report. We're going to open a project in Weber County in Ogden. We wanted to project the 2023 AMI over the 2022, and the projection is a 10% across the board AMI growth in Weber County, and that's massive. We've seen high single-digit, low double-digit growths in most of the markets that we work in over the last five years, and a lot of that includes COVID period data. So, you know, I think that's a silver lining for us. When we talk about forward projection, we're growing our wages. We're growing our income. You know, Utah's known for its talent pool, known for its energetic workforce. And that's showing up because employers are recognizing that. Our market is growing. Our economy is growing. So I think that's all good stuff as far as we're concerned. And just right. to add on that real quick, you know, I think the prevailing thought, um, you know, during COVID uh, was, okay, Utah's seen some 
you know, increase in population, increase in, in wage growth. Um, but that's just a, a short-term thing that will end. Well, we've seen the exact opposite, right? 2022, we had, you know, 62% um, of the population growth was from net in-migration, right? And not from natural increase. So, you know, those are, again, indicators uh, why, we, why we're firm, firm believers on, on Salt Lake and Utah in general. And I, I would just say, so, I mean, 12 months from now, I think rents are actually up. Um, I think 24 to 36 months from now, I think they're up a lot. And really just that 12 months is kind of dealing with some of that short-term supply that we're seeing. But I think once you get through that and that's stabilized, and then I, again, I think that supply sort of decreases a little bit with the challenges we're facing. And then I think you actually see some big jumps. I, I would agree. I was just going to say really quickly, our, we just finished our absorption study and we basically are showing 8,200 units in Salt Lake County delivering this year, whether or not the debt markets change that or push that along. And then 6,200 6, units next year we have very little in 2025 and 2026, so data would back what you're saying, Alec. Yeah, anytime you pause on building any asset class, like office right now, right, and there's going to be a, I don't know about office, but there's going to be a shortage at some point. So, um, all right, I have one last question, then we want to, we want to put it out there uh, for you all to ask questions. So despite all these changes that, that are taking place, Utah remains one of the strongest economies in the nation. Natalie and a few other people have said it well, where there's there's nowhere else you'd rather do business. So we're ranked number one by US News. We're number three, best state for business in Forbes, and we're in the top 10 in a whole host of other rankings. So looking ahead, one, three, five, however many years you'd like to look ahead, uh, what are you excited about right now? What, what gets you excited? Kurt, you wanna go first? Yeah, I, I go back to my initial comment. You know, I, I think what Heinz and and personally what I'm most excited about is helping to solve this housing imbalance, right? I think there's huge opportunity here in Utah, and that's that's what gets us, you know, kind of juiced up and, and excited. And I'll add excited and what makes you feel optimistic, if you'd like to add that too, so... I, I would just say that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty right now, but I don't think that anything that's going on right now has changed our sort of original thesis to build this company and the number of units that we have coming in this market over the long term. Um, again, we look at everything on a long term basis. Um, I look at this market five, seven, ten years from now, and we feel really, really good. And I would say that in conversations with potential equity partners, other partners, and just in general, um, I think that uh, those feelings are shared. So. Yeah, I mean, echoing both what Kurt and Alex said, too. And in addition to that, what we're optimistic about, and I'm going to speak specifically about affordable housing here, is the attention that we're getting as a little sub-industry of multifamily development. You know, most people never really gave affordable housing much thought, and I'll do a little shameless plug. I did write a little article in the magazine there where I talk about this, so you can read that. But our legislature, our leaders are taking these issues seriously they're de devoting time, attention, and money to these issues that we have around housing affordability, housing imbalance, social inequities, all the things that drive us to, to kind of you know, push our projects forward. So I'm optimistic that we live in a state that has the ability to come together. There was a lot of talk in that earlier panel about political imbalance and infighting. And we have that here, but we also have really good uh, culture that allows people to come together regardless of political differences. So. I'm, I'm grateful for that. All right, Mark. I, I have kind of two thoughts. The first is, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. 
The, the first is that um, we have shown developers in state and out of state that you can be rewarded for pushing the envelope on design. And I think that we, the product that's coming into our market that's being delivered right now is incredible. And I think what's coming is incredible. So the second thing to that is it's not being built for me. I'm a cheap, cheap Utah, um, but it's being built for what's coming next, which is an incredible, dynamic, highly educated, motivated, strong group. Kurt and I, we toured Edison House yesterday and I was just thinking like, man, I'm a nerd. I am, I'm old. And, uh, but it was unbelievable. They have a thousand people supposedly on their waiting list just to become members of that. So the access to amenities, access to that 18 hour city, access to that lifestyle. I think what we've seen in Salt Lake, we've seen nothing yet. The second thing I will say is the 700 acre prison redevelopment site. Holy crap. I think we cannot overstate or understate. I don't know the right word to say that will change our world. Utah County stands out. If you take Utah County out of our state growth statistics, Salt Lake City is like eighth to 15th across the board. There's so much happening in Utah County and the prison site will connect our Metroplex and the companies that are looking there and the development site that's gonna happen there will connect us. And similar to what Post District has done to downtown to revitalize that, just imagine what that's gonna do to our Wasatch Front. And I'll also tell you that when did the LDS Church build City Creek, it was in the last downturn and it absolutely supported our communities, right? We're heading into another downturn. They're kickstarting that. Utah is a great place to be. I'm paying these guys a hundred bucks every time they mention post district. <laughs> well, I would say, I would say I tell people all the time that Dixon's my favorite deal and it's 59 units on a half acre. So it's super niche. So riches are in the niches and finding those, those right people to develop to is huge. Right, that's a bonus payment, right? There. <laughs> and also they've got this one in Utah County. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We're going to jump to the Q and a component of our, of our panel. Uh, if we have time, I, no one has come in and waved their hands at me yet. So I'm just going to go ahead, Rhonda. Danny, I have no idea. I'll put a little plug in that we are, we being the University of Utah, would like to add 10,000 units or well, I should say beds of student housing over the next 10 years. 5,000 on campus. We'll need your help uh, with the off-campus component. So if you have any sites that are proximate to campus that would make good student housing sites, uh, give me a call. We'll, we'll put you in touch with the right people. So, all right. So a couple of questions here, and I, um, first one is the housing demand coming from people moving to Utah or people from Utah? And I actually just looked at this data yesterday. Uh, it's both, but I think Kurt said it, we've shifted. Uh, most of our population growth is in migration now. So, um, and then Jake, here's a question for you. Um, legislative effects on multifamily housing supply. Um, talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, we see effects at every level. So the question being asked from the local level is much different than the question being asked from the state level. But the answer to both is commitment to solving the problem. So we've seen a, a big movement at the local level. Cities are taking the problem seriously. They understand that their policies can affect how and when and how effectively housing gets built in their communities. So whether it's putting programs in place to help facilitate the funding of affordable housing or planning and zoning that allows for more flexible development that frees up the process, 
I've had a building permit take a year before on an affordable housing project in a city that really wanted it. And that is kind of inexcusable. There's no reason why that should happen. So we're starting to see that solve a little bit. At least the attention is there, the intention as well. So that's at the local level. Then at the state level, we're starting to see leaders from both sides of the aisle, like I mentioned before, come together to form policies that help us solve our housing problems. Because we often bracket this in, in one of two ways, depending on who our audience is. We either pitch this as a social impact initiative, which a lot of people want to hear that story, or we pitch this as an economic development initiative because other people want to hear that story. And for us, it's easy because it's they're both true. So we see that at the state level, whether it's economic development or social impact, we have the attention of the leaders. And, and like I said before, they're dedicating time, energy, and resources and money, so. All right, next question. Alex and Kurt, I'm gonna throw this one your way. Uh, to what extent have you addressed work and lifestyle changes in your projects? For example, work from home, uh, urbanization, uh, Salt Lake City becoming a more modern city. And I think we've touched on it a little bit, but if you'd like to add anything. I would just kind of go back to what Jake said earlier, sort of with the Gen Z millennial conversation. I mean, obviously, it's we, we look at these projects kind of holistically and sort of what that experience is for the resident. And so one of those things, when you look at kind of the office space and working from home, and so we've added a lot of co-working space to most of our projects, which historically we didn't do. We started adding those really sort of kind of during COVID. We actually redesigned some space, took out a couple of units and started adding that. And we see a lot of demand there, and that seems to be an important amenity with our residents. Great. Kurt, you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I think I would second the co-working space. You know, it, it's something that uh, is an amenity that, that a lot of people are, are kind of, uh, you know, interested in at this point. Um, being an expert on, on office and, and understanding that, um, you know, a certain contingent of, of the population out there is going to be working hybrid and working remote. Um, you know, those are amenities that we're, we're working on and des designing into our projects. Um, but we, we feel um, at Heinz that uh, there's a, a pendulum swing uh, that, you know, that people are going to have to figure out, you know, probably in the next six to 18 months, uh, what's going on with office. And I think from that perspective, we're, we're very high on, on trophy. I know it's not the right audience for this, but trophy office is, is where we're, we're focused on. So, all right. Um, I think we still have a little bit of time. So this is actually one of my questions. Um, so talking about student housing again, we're, we're looking across the country, and this is, this is really a construction cost question, but uh, student housing costs have gone up a lot. We're looking at a 1,300 to 1,500 per bed per month for students on new, new construction. Um, so what role does preservation play in this market? Instead of tearing down old buildings and building new ones, is, do, you, do you see a trend where preservation might become more common? We're seeing a major push for it on our side from the development side. We have been uh, pursuing acquisition rehab projects that we can do the same sorts of deed restrictions, either taking naturally occurring class C product, improving it, and then deed restricting it for the same tenant base, or taking something that is existing uh, deed restricted but maybe low quality and then just improving the quality. What we ran into over the past 
two years, and I blame Mark and his cronies for this, was that we became too popular and we were no longer able to compete. And you can tell this story too. I mean, we were seeing sub three cap on existing affordable deed restricted properties in our own market. And that's unheard of, but it became attractive to institutional buyers. We were no longer able to compete, but I actually see that coming back. So that is a core strategy for us. And, uh, you know, I, th I think Kurt's strategy of conversion is also incredibly interesting. And I can't wait to talk to you more about that. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just say sub three caps. That, that's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, in all seriousness, you know, we, we really believe firmly, um, in the office to resi conversion. And I think a certain portion of, of those projects, you know, can even be allocated towards student housing. So. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's helpful. And I think, uh, like I said, nobody's, nobody's waving their hands at us to stop. I, I'll go, I'll, we'll ask one more question, then we'll wrap it up. So parking in a city that's, that's growing, uh, becoming more dense, um, at current developments look, you know, sometimes they're less than one space per unit. Um, tell us a little bit about maybe some of the innovative ways you've either seen or, or deployed to solve some parking challenges. Well, I, I think um, going back to the post district, I don't know if you guys have heard about that project, <laughs> but um, so I mean, that, that's sort of an interesting case study, right? Because we've got, you know, 250,000 square feet of office and retail sort of part of the overall project and then 580 residential units. And, when you go and you say, okay, if I look at these projects, you know, individually, and you look at sort of the parking that you'd have to produce, um, you know, very difficult to pencil. There's some synergies there when you look at kind of that daytime, nighttime use and, and sharing, um, you know, between the different components. And so, you know, to a certain degree, we we kind of made it up as we were going, right? I mean, we sort of put together and said, hey, you know, how many office users do we think are going to be using this during the day? And we were talking to groups that, you know, have real experience in, in managing these office buildings. And how many, you know, do we think on the residential side they're going to be using during the day and then the evening at night and actually sort of breaking down those hours. And so that was one way where I think we were able to, um, you know, get, get some efficiency there sort of in the overall project. And where it becomes difficult is you got to get, you know, financial partners to buy off on that, right? And both on the lending and on the equity side, not just to mention it's kind of, do we think this is the right thing for the project? But um, that was one thing that we found um, that, you know, helped us kind of make that project pencil. All right. Anyone else? I, I was going to say that we always laughed when cities would say we want a half stall per unit while the developers out in the market trying to get tenants saying come to utah enjoy the outdoors and then they get here and it's like there's no place for them to park but it's okay because parking is 180 dollars a month across the street you know stuff like that so i think parking is extremely important to think through one thing that i've thought about a lot is is the panelists kind of talk through this is where the future is going is really creating those places like community is your 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 net the, the next most important amenity actually is going to be community and where you are and when you're creating things like the post district, um, if you look at the growth of our design, it was like basically, hey, fourth south is awesome. Oh, she's cutting us off. I'll be quick. Everybody built their place, right? And it, we had this amenities arms race we used, to, we used to talk about where we have a golf simulator and our pool is bigger than their pool. And now all of a sudden we've graduated where it's, you're, you're going to live in a community that has access to all those 24-7 things you want. And so I commend these developers for taking us to that next level. All right. That's it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you.